Hello, I'm Anne O'Brien, Director of the Auckland Writers' Festival, and you're listening to a podcast recorded live at our May 2015 event in which UK writer Helen MacDonald speaks with broadcaster Noelle McCarthy. Helen MacDonald is a historian, a poet, a naturalist and an illustrator. She is the author of H's for Hawk, which won the Costa Award and the Samuel Johnson Prize for Nonfiction. It is the chronicle of her attempt to tame Mabel the Goshawk as a means of assuaging her grief after the death of her beloved father. It has been hailed as a triumph and is a Sunday Times bestseller. It is a beautiful book about nature, love, grief and redemption. We hope you enjoy this session. What a lot of people. Oh my goodness. Hello. Raptors are rock stars, I told you. Um, Good afternoon, everyone. I'm Noelle McCarthy, and it's my pleasure to welcome you to this session of the Auckland Writers' Festival with Helen MacDonald. H is for Hawk, and B is for Brilliant. And what a brilliant book this is. An extraordinary synthesis of nature writing and memoir. This is a book about a goshawk called Mabel, bought for a bundle of notes on a quay in Scotland while the author was still trying to cope with the death of her father. It's a record of grief, of the disorder that comes with great loss, and of the possibilities and of the limits of consolation. If that wasn't enough, it's also a literary biography of a writer and an unhappy falconer called T.H. White, who also had his own painful experience of a goshawk. The result is a magical hybrid, an unprecedented blend of natural history, memory, poetry, and ornithology. It's won a clutch of awards, including last year's Costa Award and the Samuel Johnson Prize for Nonfiction. The author beside me, Helen MacDonald, is a scholar, a writer, an illustrator, an historian, a poet, a falconer, and an outstringer, (laughs) and that is a person who trains hawks. Just one of the many lovely, strange words that I learned from this book. And what a pleasure it is to welcome you here, Helen MacDonald, to the land of flightless birds. I know, New Zealand, <laughs> bird central. I've been out, actually, after a little bit of, uh, of, sort of looking around, and I, I made friends with a takahe named Paku. And uh, we had a, little commu- a bit of communication with each other, and we sort of bonded, and I was like, this is the best day of my life, you know. <laughs> And then someone told me that kakapos smell like the inside of clarinet cases. So that's my new piece of information about ornithology that I'm taking home with me. <laughs> Two questions straight away. How do you know when you've bonded with a takake? <sighs> you just know. <laughs> and what does the inside of a clarinet case smell like? Like a kakapo. <laughs> <laughs> Um, So how we're going to run this session is we'll begin with a reading from H's for Hawk. We'll have a conversation and we'll make sure to leave some time for your questions at the end. Um, So what would you like to read? Well, I think I'll um, I'll read a bit about opening the box, really, about that weird morning where it was a bit like a drugs deal and I was wandering around a Scottish quayside with a cigarette in one hand and a can of Red Bull and £800 in my back pocket looking very shifty indeed. In fact, after I left with the hawk in a box... I drove past and saw the poor man who bred the hawk standing there surrounded by armed policemen. Um, I just kept driving. I was like, I'm just going to keep Good going. move. That second hawk did look like trouble. Yeah, so this is, this is the story of how I first met Mabel and how basically she was so extraordinary and so 
unlikely and new and astonishing. I didn't really, didn't really have the word to describe her, so I, I use lots of words. Concentration, infinite caution, daylight irrigating the box, scratching talons, another thump and another thump. The air turned syrupy, slow, flecked with dust, the last few seconds before a battle. And with the last bow pulled free, he reached inside. And amidst a whirring, chaotic clatter of wings and feet and talons and a high-pitched twittering, and it's all happening at once, the man pulls an enormous, enormous hawk out of the box. And in a strange coincidence of world and deed, a great flood of sunlight drenches us, and everything is brilliance and fury. The hawk's wings barred and beating, the sharp fingers of her dark-tipped primaries cutting the air, her feathers raised like the scattered quills of a fretful porpentine. That's from Hamlet. I was quite pleased to get that in there. <laughs> Two enormous eyes. My heart jumps sideways. She's a conjuring trick, a reptile, a fallen angel, a griffin from the pages of an illuminated bestiary, something bright and distant like gold falling through water, a broken marionette of wings, legs, and light-splashed feathers. She's wearing jesses, and the man is holding them. For one awful long moment, she's hanging head downward, wings open like a turkey in a butcher's shop, only her head is turned right way up, and she is seeing more than she has ever seen before in her whole short life. Her world was an aviary no larger than a living room, then it was a box, but now it is this, and she can see everything. The point source glitter on the waves, a diving cormorant a hundred yards out, pigment flakes under wax on the lines of parked cars, far hills and the heather on them, and miles and miles of sky where the sun spreads on dust and water and illegible things moving in it that are white scraps of gulls. Everything is startling and new stamped on her entirely astonished brain. Through all this, the man was perfectly calm. He gathered up the hawk in one practiced mov movement, folding her wings, anchoring her broad feathered back against his chest, and gripping her scale yellow legs in one hand. Let's get that hood back on, he said tautly. There was concern in his face. It was born of care. This hawk had been hatched in an incubator had broken from a frail bluish eggshell into a humid perspex box, and for the first few days of her life, this man had fed her with scraps of meat held in a pair of tweezers, waiting patiently for the lumpen, fluffy chick to notice the food and eat, her new neck wobbling with the effort of keeping her head in the air. All at once I loved this man, and fiercely. I grabbed the hood from the box and turned to the hawk. Her beak was open, her hackles raised, her wild eyes were the colour of sun on white paper, and they stared because the whole world had fallen into them at once. One, two, three. I tucked the hood over her head. There was a brief intimation of a thin, angular skull under her feathers, of an alien brain fizzing and fusing with terror. Then I drew the braces closed. We checked the ring numbers against the form. It was the wrong bird. This was the younger one, the smaller one. This was not my hawk. Oh. So he put her back and opened the other box, which was meant to hold my larger, older bird. And dear God, it did. Everything about the second hawk was different. She came out like a Victorian melodrama, a sort of madwoman in the attack. She was smokier and darker and much, much bigger. And instead of twittering, she wailed great, awful gouts of sound like a thing in pain. And the sound was unbearable. This is my hawk, I was telling myself. And it was all I could do to breathe. She too was bareheaded, and I grabbed the hood from the box as before. But as I brought it up to her face, 
I looked in her eyes and saw something blank and crazy in her stare, some madness from a distant country. I didn't recognize her. This isn't my hawk. The hood was on, the ring numbers checked, the bird back in the box, the yellow form folded, the money exchanged, and all I could think was, but this isn't my hawk. Slow panic. I knew what I had to say, and it was a monstrous breach of etiquette. This is really awkward, I began, <laughs> but I really liked the first one. Do you think there's any chance I could take the first one? In? I tailed off. His eyebrows were raised. I started again, saying stupider things. I'm sure the other falconer would like the other bird. I mean, she's larger. It's more beautiful than the first one, isn't she? Yeah. I know this is out of order, but, but could I? Would it, would it be all right, do you think? And on and on. A crazy, desperate barrage of incoherent appeals. I'm sure nothing I said persuaded him more than the look on my face as I said it. A tall, white-faced woman with wind-wrecked hair and exhausted eyes was pleading with him on a quayside, hands held out as if she were in a seaside production of Medea. Looking at me, he must have sensed that my stuttered request wasn't a simple one, that there was something behind it that was very important. There was a moment of total silence. All right, he said. And then, because he didn't see me believe him, yes, Yes, I'm, I'm sure that will be okay. Thank you. That poor man, I must have come across as so bonkers. <laughs> but you knew your hawk. Yeah, isn't that strange? Well, having read your book, there, there appears to be a sense of inevitability. Yeah. around your acquisition of a goshawk. You were dreaming of hawks, and with respect, it wasn't an... It doesn't seem like it was an entirely rational decision to It was acquire totally one. irrational, yeah. <laughs> and I think once... I mean, I, I, I guess after a big loss, after a huge shock, like uh, losing my dad, you know, I, I, your conscious mind just sort of stops working, really. The logical part of you, the part, the part of you that can arrange things and deal with schedules and work out what's best for you is just sort of rendered redundant and broken. And I was working on very deep intuitions that weren't really amenable to any kind of conscious examination. And one of those intuitions was <laughs> to cope with my dad's death, I'm going to train a goshawk, which is not something I recommend generally people do. Prior to this, you had no interest in flying goshawks, you'd said. Yeah, I'd been a falconer since I was tiny. I got my first hawk when I was 11 or 12, a kestrel called Amy. He used to sit in my bedroom, um, sleep in my bedroom bookcase. Um, my mum used to put newspaper underneath just you know, to catch the mess. Um, poor mum. But goshawks, I feel a lot of falcons, which are very kind of tractable aerial predators, but goshawks never, never appealed to me. They had this weird reputation in falconry as being basically murderous, psychopathic killers. And also, the kind of people who tended to fly them were kind of quite blokey. They tended to have tattoos. They tended to kind of have big motorbikes. Um, they tended to tell you how big the rabbit was that their goshawk caught that day. And that just didn't really appeal to me, but something had changed. And suddenly, that's all I could think about doing, was getting one of these things. And so for most of us, this decision to acquire something psychopathic and capable of killing and with a brain that is hardwired for murder right. um, wouldn't be an obvious 
decision to make. And yet, as you say, you have form. You're, you're a trained falconer. I have this form. Isn't, this, isn't, <laughs> this wasn't yeah. necessarily an unusual move for you to make. Yeah. You were already used to what you call in the book those old and emotional ways of moving through landscape. Yeah. And gosh, I envied you when I read that. I had a very, very lucky childhood. And I think it was, a, I think that those, that sense that I was at home outside in the woods and the field is something that very few, much, many fewer children, particularly in England, have these days. I think, hoping it's much more common over here. And that is that kids can get out there and they can kind of find the world themselves. They can make dens and climb trees and dig holes and turn over rocks and find insects and stuff like that. I think it's a bit harder to do in Australia because mm. there's more things that want to kill you. But, um, it, and then I went, when I became a falconer, I guess the lure of that is that I, it was something I knew how to do. And I sort of took me a long time to work out. Much later, I realized that I realized you couldn't tame grief. It's impossible to tame it. But I knew I could tame a hawk. And the hawk seemed as wild as, as the grief. And it was a kind of massive distraction to, to, to be into that, in that sort of world where there's no language, there's no speech, there's only body movements and intuitions and watching. So it wasn't so strange that you would go into nature at a time of crisis. But what's so interesting, Helen, is that eventually you had to come out. Oh, God, yeah, I went absolutely nuts. <laughs> well, I'd bought into, the, I'd, as I say in the book, I'd bought into this kind of nature writing traditional sort of advice, which is that, you know, the modern world and the world of people is constricting and stifling and emotionally hard. And if you want to get solace and, 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 and renew yourself, you can go into, the nat into nature, into the green, and it will offer you renewal and, and solace. And I bought into that, and I kind of did it with the gospel, but I just went way too far. You know, I, I lost myself in it. Well, this is where you being a poet is very interesting, because, I mean, that's the high romantic tradition of nature, isn't it? The anchor of my purest yeah. thoughts, my feelings. Yes. That whole Tintern Abbey idea of yeah. nature as panacea, as solace. Absolutely. And, and one of the things that became very interesting when I flew the hawk is, although that flight to nature was part of that romantic um, intuition. When I was out with my hawk, watching her fly and hunt like a wild bird, there was this incredible identification with her to the point where I sort of really thought I was seeing the world through her eyes. And that world I saw wasn't the world of the romantic poet. It wasn't the um, inspiring mountainous kind of um, view, the sort of sense that you, you, know, you can regard nature and somehow it will kind of fill you with kind of awe and, and a sort of sense of um, anchoring and, and, and identity. It was, a, it was a radical dislocation of identity. So the, the whole world became this fascinating place full of um, magnificent detail and confusion. And all I could think about was the wind, the weather, the, where the rabbits were. You know, it wasn't, a, uh, it wasn't the world of romantic mm. poet. It was the world of a hawk in my, in my head. Well, you don't get it. I mean, even Jared Manley Hopkins writes about a falcon. Oh, a great poem. Which is about, yeah, it's a religious which, poem. Yeah, yeah which yeah. is about religion but he doesn't write about the telephone being plugged out and the frozen chicks being in the freezer or in your pockets yeah or walking through the countryside and having to break the rabbit's neck no no he didn't that would have been a very different poem <laughs> the wind hover if he'd been talking about it but i think that's kind of interesting generically though because nature writing you're not supposed to do things like talk about telephones and red bull and you're not supposed to swear or smoke cigarettes in it you know 
Um, there's not many, there's no jokes in nature writing. No. It's very earnest. You and know. you don't usually say how much the bird cost and how you paid for it. That was cold yeah, hard it's cash. Really, wasn't it's it? really funny. You know, all the reviews of this book say eight hundred pounds that cost. <laughs> It's really interesting, isn't it? I, I wrote that too, and as though I'd have any idea how much a, a goshawk costs. They're a lot more expensive now, actually. Yeah. That's not because of the book, but they, they, you know, they're very hard to breed. <laughs> it's interesting that since, though, that, 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 you know, there's been a, there was a, quite a snipey article about wild goshawks in one of the papers after the book came out, saying, you know, and yet some people take these birds in the wild and they subject them to the disgusting, filthy world of lucre and capitalism. And I'm thinking, ooh. You know, um, A, my goshawk wasn't taken from the wild. All the birds of prey used in, in Great Britain are captive bred, so they're a bit like chickens. They're just bred in captivity. Although, obviously, they're not like chickens because, well, for obvious reasons, they've got talons and murder things, right? Although I did see a chicken eat a mouse once, and it was quite terrifying. <laughs> anyway, I'm getting away from this. I shouldn't have had that coffee before I came on stage. <laughs> but that sense that the world of raptors is a world of remoteness, of rarity, of... Um, nobility. You know, nobility... All these things are not to do with the bird. They're to do with human history and human interaction with birds of prey. And one of the things I was very keen to do in the book is talk about how um, we use nature as a mirror of our own needs. We use nature to prove our own concepts to us. And we can't help but do that all the time. But it's really important to see that we're doing that. And one of the, the joys of reading the book is how consistently, and you've just shown us this, you find the right words to honour what Mabel is without anthropomorphizing her. I think at one stage you compare her to a kitten when she's playing. We used to play with paper balls. She used to throw them back to me. We used to catch them and throw them back. It was so much fun. <laughs> but, you know, you, you compare her to a fallen angel, a griffon. But she's never a person. She's never like you. There's a yeah. partnership. Yeah, yeah. And, and the great revelation at the end is, although I kind of wanted to be her, the joy of that relationship ultimately was that we, we shared this life, you know, and yet she was utterly unlike me. She was a, she's a bloody hawk, right? You know, she's an inhuman thing. And yet there's enough contact between those two very different worlds for us to have had a really good time. You know, we'd go out and fly for hours. She'd catch rabbits. I'd give her some to eat raw. I'd obviously cook my bit. I did get a bit fed up with rabbit, though, actually. I went to Toronto quite recently, and there was a sort of restaurant special thing where I was sort of talking to all the... Yes, it was really nice, but the restaurant served rabbit in honour of Mabel, and I was kind of pushing it around my plate going, I don't anymore. <laughs> and then we'd come home and she'd watch television with me. You know, it was a really weird kind of... Antiques Roadshow. She loved Antiques Roadshow. <laughs> Good taste. Yeah, I don't know quite what it was about it, but she, the music in particular, all the little feathers on her head would crest with rays, and she'd be like... That's always the question, though, isn't it, in, in these you know, great stories about relationships between people and their creatures. You know, reciprocity. Yeah. How, how can you know that the feeling is, is coming both ways? Or maybe you can't know. Can you only feel it? Um, you do, I think, get a very good working knowledge of whether an animal is happy or not, if you live with it long enough. But it does require certain skills. And, I mean, the world is full of people with animals that aren't happy and they don't know it. YouTube is full of terrible things. Of sort of, look at this hilarious interaction between a dog and my son, and you're like, that dog is terrified. Look at this interaction between a parrot and my, you know, my daughter's cat. The parrot is terrified. So it's something you need to learn, and some people just don't seem to ever really get round to kind of learning mm. it. Um, 
And I guess it's the same with people. You know, I'm quite bad at people, actually. I'm much better at birds, you know. You wouldn't think No, of. I really am. <laughs> but I, mean, I don't want to get the anthropomorphism thing. You know, when I talk about Goshawks being murderous at the beginning of the book, I'm basically um, quoting all the books I'd heard and read and all the people I'd sort of... But of course they're not murderous. Mm. They're entirely innocent. That's just what they do, you know. Was that the difficult part for you, the, the killing? The killing that was involved. I think there's a passage in the book where you're about to dispatch yet another rabbit. You know, because you know that if you don't, the bird yeah. will eat it alive because yeah. that's what they do. And yeah. I think it was T.H. White who talked about having that closeness, training a sporting animal allows you to give vent to yeah, your he didn't. He, he sort of he didn't talk about it overtly, but I think that was going on with him. I don't know if any of you have read The Goshawk or know much about T.H. White. Um, if you've read my book, you'll know an awful lot about him. <laughs> but he, he was um, incredibly sad, um, had a horrendous early upbringing, very violent, abusive childhood, both at school and at home. And he was gay, which was a really rubbish thing to be in 1906, when you, if you were born then. Um, and he was, had sort of sadistic tendencies that I think were probably related to his mistreatment as a child. And he, he lived his life full of shame and at the mercy of these desires that he never felt he could ever fulfill. But he somehow managed to do it through animals. And one of the reasons he wanted to train a goshawk was that he saw the goshawks, as you say, the goshawks hunting and killing and murdering as innocent. And if he trained a goshawk, then somehow he could experience that innocence vicariously and fulfill his desires. It's really messed up. Um, when, I, when my goshawk killed things, it was always a very sobering and serious experience. You know, it wasn't something, there was no bloodlust, there was no kind of, I must go out and kill stuff. It was... Um, and it was ironic, obviously, because I was running away from death, you know, my dad's death. And yet there was the great mystery, you know, day after day, these things would be alive, my hawk would catch them, and then they wouldn't be. And it made me, I think, more than anything, feel accountable. And it made me realize that we just don't see death anymore. We don't see it very much at all in our lives. Um, be it human or animal death, it all happens behind walls. And that seems somehow important to remember that it's, it's always there. We don't see death, and we can't share grief. Yeah. You, you, you talk about this in your book. C.S. Lewis talks about it in A Grief Observed. Yeah. The impossibility of sharing the grief of, of another, even when you are both stricken by grief, whether it's your family or your friends. And I just wondered if you could comment on that in relation... You know, there was distance between yourself and Mabel, mm. species distance, yeah. but you were distanced from everybody by your grief anyway. Yeah, I, well, I was. I was already isolated um, in that way that grief makes you isolated. But I think the what I was trying to do with the hawk unconsciously was to sort of collapse the distance between me and her and identify, again, identified with her so much that I, I felt that I was a hawk and didn't have to experience any human hurts at all. So I, the, my mistake and my, my kind of trajectory was to try and shrink that distance to nothing between me and a bird. Um, but as for the kind of, yeah, I don't know, the loneliness thing, it's, it's a, I don't know, it's, it's been a really astonishing experience talking about this book on, on tour. I've met literally hundreds of people who have had very, very, very bad experiences and are grieving. And um, pretty usually at the signings I'm in tears at some point or another mm. and so is someone else and my lovely publicist, publicist are run up with tissues. Um, and I think there's something about the festivals that, and the book becomes a kind of way of, there's a space that opens 
um, an opportunity for speech about things that are hard. And I think literary, sorry, I'm going literary fest, but I think literary festivals are really interesting. That they let thoughts be thought and words be said that, that, that aren't normally available or possible in everyday life. So mm. they're really special. Like that. Sorry, let's get back to the book. I'm <laughs> no, but your book is something that does that, you know, and it's impossible to know. You can only speculate, but perhaps that's part of the reason for the success of your book, that it allows these thoughts to be spoken and these things to be said in the context of a story about a very interesting creature. Mabel is fascinating. Well, Mabel is the superhero of the book. I'm just the sidekick, you know. <laughs> she's, she's the thing. I don't know. I didn't expect any of this to happen when I wrote the book. I really did think it was a very odd book. There was a lot of swearing and crying and pizza eating as I, read, as I wrote it. When I pressed send to my editor, I was like, oh, God, what have I been doing for the last few years? This is a disaster. And then this thing happened, and it, and it just flew, partly because I have an amazing publisher, but partly also because there's something in it that... I, I had a woman who told me once that she thought it was a book for anyone who'd ever wanted to escape their life that they were living. And, um, you know, that's kind of everyone, right? And at one point or another. Was that what, what Mabel had that you wanted, the yeah. possibility of escape? Yeah, yeah, she was a way into another world. And um, the book's been talked about in ways I didn't expect when I wrote it. And one of those ways was that it's got a kind of shamanic arc. It's like a, a trip to the underworld and back with a hawk as a kind of an assisting spirit. A guide. A guide, yeah. And, um, yeah, that's, I mean, that's something, again, that's sort of really fascinating and hadn't, yeah. hadn't really occurred to me at the time. It's not surprising, though, because birds are historically and mythically shapeshifters, aren't they? They enable yeah. that passage, and that would have been something you would have been aware of as a poet. Yeah, and as a historian. So one of the weird things about the book is that it, a lot of the stuff that I'm thinking through in the book is stuff that I'd worked on as a historian about the way that people and animals interact and cultural history of birds of prey. And I had all these theories, but it wasn't until that year happened that I felt the truth of them right here, you know, there's a difference between knowing something and feeling it. And yeah, right across Eurasia, in prehistoric times, there were these sort of huge cults of, of raptors and birds of prey, and that, the birds of prey always seemed to stand in for the same sorts of things. They stood in for the human soul, they stood in for the souls of unborn children, they stood in for uh, messengers between one world and another, between the world of gods and humans, between the world of the underworld and, and, and the living world. And I think all these stories are always bubbling along, you know, quietly beneath, you know, beneath our, our lives. And, and sometimes they come out, you know. It's so fascinating you say that. I was reading Hilary Mantel's Bring Up the Bodies around mm. the same time as your book. And those are the first sentences. Oh, his, the daughters, yeah. His children are in the air and they're birds. Exactly, yeah. Hawks, yeah. I think. Yeah, yeah, they're falcons, absolutely, in that sense. And that stoop of the falcon from the heavens to the earth, which is something that certain finds of falconry actually is, that's what it's, it's for, it's to generate these extraordinary stoops where a bird that's a speck in the sky will suddenly fold its wings and drop like a stone. And you hear this sound like tearing fabric and it will fly right down. That was always sort of talked about in the literature of the sort of early modern times as being a bit like kind of the abasement of the soul in front of our Lord. So again, you know, no matter back to what, Hopkins. there's back to Hopkins. Yeah, this sense that religion and falcons are always kind of weirdly tied up together. Which was very much in your story as well. You were praying to Horus oh as God. a child. Oh God, I didn't realize. There, you know, there's things I wrote in this book that I wouldn't have written if I'd thought that more than two people were going to read it. Tell us more about that. Yeah, so I was a really obsessive child. I was one of those kids that, you know, I never got invited to parties. 
Well, I, I did, actually, but I was, mm -hmm. I was trying to write. I was obsessed with birds and birds of prey. And when I was about um, six, I tried to sleep with my arms behind my back, like wings every night, which was, didn't work, you know. <laughs> and then I was a circulation. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> You're right, dear. You know, my parents were like, what should we do with this? And then, um, yeah, I, d I saw a photograph in uh, the La Russe Encyclopedia of Mythology of the Egyptian god Horus, the creator god um, Ra and Horus both had these amazing falcon heads. And I thought, that's my god, right? This guy we talk about in assemblies at school with the drapes and the beard. No, that's not mine. <laughs> so, <laughs> my god has a bird. He's head. the heights of a Taurus, clearly, right? So I used to go in and we used to do the, the Lord's Prayer in assemblies back then. And everyone else was being, you know, sort of saying, Our Father, which art in heaven. And I was like, Dear Horus. I did it really quietly because I knew it was wrong, but I couldn't help it. That lasted ages, actually. Oh, god, I'm really embarrassing myself. <laughs> Did writing this book help you to understand that obsession with birds? Or, or do you need to understand it? Does it matter? Uh, did it help me understand? I think that year helped me understand that there was something about Birds of Prey that's centrally connected to me with love and loss and some kind of weird spirituality as well. Mm. And also falconry is so much about trust it's about letting something go and it flying off and then it coming back and it conjures with presence and absence in a way that's incredibly emotional every time a hawk flies back to you it's like the world is, is made anew basically and I think most Vulcaners feel that but um, the book I didn't think it was grief work to write it it wasn't like a therapeutic thing until the last sentence and then I kind of it really fell apart um, it really suddenly did feel I felt dizzy, you know, and I realized it really was a proper goodbye, that book. Saying that last few sentences was a goodbye to my dad and also to the person I'd been back then. Because as you can see, I'm not quite as miserable as I was mm -hmm. that year. You know. Although I'm wearing black, sorry about that. But, um, there was yeah. a break in time, wasn't there, between yeah. the experience and actually writing it down. Yeah. Which makes this a feat of, a very unusual feat of memory. Were you taking notes? The whole time you were doing yeah, it? No, I, I, was, I mean, I, I started writing after my dad died, uh, just writing. I think it was a kind of, it sounds really overblown, but it was a way of trying to stitch the world back together or make the world come back. It was all, you know, trying to, and then the world had a, that world had a hawk in it. But, um, yeah, something weird happened to my memory after dad died. Everything became very, very clear. And I have a terrible memory, but um, that year... There, there was one day, I remember in particular, sitting under a tree in a rainstorm with a hawk on my fist. And I'm under a yew tree in a wood, and I can see drops of rain bounce off her crown and roll down the sides of her cheeks. And she's blinking as they get in her eyes and down her chest and onto the floor. And I can remember the patterns on, of, of the leaves under, her, under my feet. And um, I think it's something to do with grief. I think it did something to my memory. And I tried to make the book also really immediate. I tried to make it feel like, like you were there because that's what it was like with a hawk. There's no past or present. When you're flying a hawk, everything's right there in front of you. So there's lots of short sentences, you know, and sentence fragments to try and get that across. Mm. But yeah, I mean, and it seems that some people just forget everything after they've had a big loss. Some people remember everything. And I guess I'm one of the, one of the latter. Mm. It's the luck of the draw, really. Mm. You describe how, as you were putting yourself in the hawk's mind, yeah. your humanity was burning away, and it made me wonder, what was it like 
to be your friend during that time? Or oh, it was impossible. It was bloody nightmarish, you know. My dear friend Christina from Melbourne, who, you know, used to occasionally call around and sort of see, are you all right, you know? And we'd go and have coffee and I'd just sort of sit there. You know? <laughs> it's really embarrassing. Bless her. My friends all forgave me, you know. Um, I, I remember being asked at the Edinburgh Festival last year, there was this question, it said, do you still have any friends? You know? <laughs> and I was like, yeah, I, I do, bless them. But um, <laughs> it was, I was a very bad friend, yeah, I was a very bad friend. But I kind of came back from there. And I think they all knew to leave me alone. I think they realized that it was something I had to do, really. My mum and my brother in particular, I, I do really regret not spending more time with them that year. And that's the one big regret is that I, obviously they were hurting just as much as me, if not more, and yet I kind of ran away. And I, I've often said to mum, you know, I'm really sorry. And she's like, yeah, you know, we just need to get a hawk, you know. <laughs> well, the other so obvious. <laughs> The, the other cliche we know or we say we know about grief is that it, it will pass. Yeah. And it did. Your experience. It's weird passing, isn't it? I mean, people say, you, you know, you get over it or it passes, but that's not quite how it is. You never get over it. It never really passes. It just changes. Um, and, of course, it's really weird to talk about grief at all because, you know, it's, I'm no expert on it. You know, it happens to everyone. But it did seem that... Um, as that year went by, almost despite myself, I started to grow around the holes and sort of become, develop a kind of armour that was sort of protected. And then suddenly all the grief turned to love. And I just remember suddenly that day where I remember I just missed my dad so much. But there wasn't that sharp pain connected with it. It was just this desperate sadness that he wasn't around. But it was a sadness I could deal with and it was all about love. And that took about a year. Um, and I think it, it takes a while. I mean, I, I think maybe if I hadn't got a hawk and done something else, it would have mm. taken less time, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I think everyone falls off the world. You know, my dad was a really good friend of mine as well as being a lovely guy. And I think, um, and I'd, I had this weird life where I was an academic and I guess I hadn't really matured, right? I was kind of still an academic. I hadn't really got a family or anything. I hadn't got a partner. I hadn't really got a proper job. I mean, basically I was the eternal student, so... Maybe if those things had been around me, it would have been a very different year. But I, I managed to unmoor myself totally, and, you know, that's what happened. And how do you feel about, um, about raptors now? I know you have a parrot. I do have a parrot <laughs> now. Badoo. I miss him so. Yeah, I've got a parrot. It's much more vindictive than my goshawk. Horrible sometimes, horrible thing. Fluffy, cuddly, small, adorable, but you do not want to piss it off because he will bite. And can he talk? Does he, he can, work? He, he's not very good at... I'm really embarrassed to admit. He's not very good at talking. He can say hello, and he can say what you're doing. And um, I have to, I'm going to tell this story. I can't believe I'm going to tell this story, but um, he's very, very funny. He, he, my friend Christina came around, the one from the book, came around for tea once, wearing, she's got on her way out for a dinner, and she's wearing a very low-cut top. And the parrot clambered up her top, lodged itself just here, peered into her cleavage and went, Hello? <laughs> <laughs> it was one of the greatest bits of animal humour I've ever, ever seen. And she just looked at me and went, I can't believe that just happened. I'm like, no. <laughs> so he has a, he has a sense of humour too, yeah. <laughs> the right word at the right time. Exactly. Um, talking to you, you make this world, this world of falconry, of being an outstringer seem very real and very yeah. natural, yeah. when actually it is a very specialised skill and one that not a lot of people 
know how to do. You know, you talk about being a child and being in the world and playing. But a lot of the things you had to learn in order to be a successful falconer, it sounds like it took a lot of discipline and, and a lot of time to learn them. Yeah, it's not, it's not something to take up lightly. Um, I've had people talk about it as, as being a little bit like a virus. Once you've caught it, you're kind of doomed, you know. You know, it's a bit like golf, maybe, in its wilder forms. You know, there are, mm. there are, falcon, there are falconry widows just as there are golf widows. It's incredibly time-consuming and difficult. And I, wrote, I, I learned a lot from books, and then I apprenticed myself at a local falconry centre and hung around and, and cleaned aviaries and jet-washed and scrubbed hawk-poo off things and finally was sufficiently kind. And I think that's the way to do it, is to get a mentor. Um, and different countries have different rules about falconry, but pretty much all of the seriously good rules involve you taking exams and or having a, having a mentor who really knows what they're doing to take you through. Because so much of it isn't learnable from books. It's something that you can only see through watching someone who, who can do it already and watching how they interact with the animal. Um, so yeah, if you're going to do it, you need land, time, a degree of kind of uh, obsession, um, lots of patience, yeah. Which explains why historically this was something that people with a lot of land and a lot of time and a yes. lot of... It's getting better now. It's not quite as posh a sport as it was. Although there are still people who go out on grouse moors with falcons and they tend to be pretty well off. But it's funny, if you, if you go... People often think that falconry is about the... Um, dominating raptors or having sort of some kind of weird power over them and they often think that the reason that it was so popular amongst the aristocracy in say early modern England is because it was a demonstration of, of one's power over other living souls but if you look really carefully at those cultures it's really fascinating they, they, it's very much about um, demonstrating wise governance if you mistreat a hawk it'll just fly away so you know if you're flying a hawk in front of your, you know, your people and they see that your hawks are you know, happy to come back to you and fly well, then it's meant to demonstrate to them that you're not a tyrant. Of course, it doesn't really do anything of the sort, but that's kind mm. of what it was about. So I like that. I like the sense that it's a very um, equitable relationship between a, a person and a wild animal. Which explains why Hilary Mantel's Henry would be exactly. seeking to show how good... Yeah. He nearly died out falconry, doing falconry once. He fell into a ditch head first, because he basically went hawking every day, you know, if you're a king, you know, I really like hawking, I'm going to do it every day, and he fell head first in, in the mud, and it was his falconer that pulled him out, and without that, he would, you know, history would have been very different. Now, speaking of wise governance, T.H. White, poor T.H. Yes, White, because White. this book is also another strand of this book, is literary biography, it's yeah. the story of a book, your story of your relationship with the goshawk. Um, and it's a sad story. Oh, God. Is that, have any of you read it, The Goshawk? No. It's one of the great, tragic, melancholic, beautiful books about nature um, or about one's attempt to sort of interact with it. It's extraordinary. It's very, very sad. Um, and it's about the story of T.H. White, who, as we've talked about before, he was a school teacher in 1936. All the fictions he tried to maintain to keep himself... You know, he tried to be a gentleman, he tried to be like everyone else, he tried to fit in, and it wasn't working. And he finally just sort of cracked and ran away and um, went to a cottage in the woods and tried to train a goshawk. And it was, it's the most intensely, um, I don't know, instructive book. Because just as I saw my goshawk as everything I wanted to be, you know, solitary, self-possessed, full of kind of murderousness, all the things I kind of sought, he saw the goshawk as something which was 
you know, slightly kind of, ooh, slightly sadistic. He saw it as something that was weirdly gay as well. He always said that the gospel liked to have its hind parts played with, you know. Mm. Um, but he saw it as himself, and he saw it as full of all the vital urges that he was repressing. And then he tried to civilize it while and wanting to it. be it and change it. It's the most incredible battle. And he doesn't know what he's doing, and he's really unconsciously cruel to this bird. He has no idea, of, none, none of the tools to be able to love something properly. And um, it becomes a battle with himself. And almost the feathered bird sort of drops out the story, really. It's, it's incredible. It made me wonder, especially contrasting his experience with your experience, which in retrospect is, is an experience of confidence and trust between you and, and Mabel. you and Mabel. Yeah. Is it always about us, you know, in terms of the natural world? Is it always about projecting? Is it possible to have that relationship? It, I don't think it's possible to interact with the natural world without projecting in some respects, but I think it's possible to interact with it and know that you're projecting. And I think that's really important. One of the most moving pieces of natural history writing I ever read is by the poet Roger Langley, who passed away very sadly a few years ago. And he's writing about a tiny insect on a railway bridge. And he's standing there staring at this brick. And there's a rail train going on underneath. And this tiny insect about the size of two full stops is wandering across the bridge. And he just stands and watches it for a long while. And he says, it doesn't know where it's going. It's never going to be seen by anyone who has words again. And he tries to find out what it is. And he doesn't quite know. But he, it's an insect that's something like one. Um, he finds one that's like it called ambulans, meaning you know, moving along. And he sort of just thinks about this insect and he says, you know, it's a piece of live stuff just like us and it doesn't know where it's going and it doesn't know that there are these trains crashing along underneath. And it becomes this huge disquisition on scale, on life, on death. But somehow as he writes about this animal, it's still a tiny insect within its entirely its own world that we can never have access to. And that's, I think, the way to kind of try and do it, if you can. Not obviously write great essays about it, but think, this is what this thing means to me. This is what it means. But what, what can it mean to itself? How does, how does that work? And it's, always, it's important to think of the world as being full of things that are not like you. You know, when I was a kid, I thought everyone was like me. I was wrong. But thank God, you know, the world is full of people who are very various and ideas that are various, and it's a joy, you know. Obviously, you had to... getting all soapboxy here. <laughs> I'll just have a sip of water. But, but obviously, you had to think about these thoughts in order to write this. And one of the interesting tensions in this book is the constant tension between feeling and thinking. On the one hand, you are feeling these incredibly powerful emotions. And on the other hand is the rationality and the expertise required to successfully... Manual. Oh, that's really interesting. That's a really interesting thought. I, I hadn't seen that because I think a lot of my, mem my knowledges about training hawks were deeply, um, they were like muscle memory. You know, I'd, I'd done it so many times that it became something that was, again, without words. Um, and I communicated with Mabel mainly through sort of mumbling and whistling, you know. Um, it's like the Hulk or something. Um, and I didn't see that that was a, that was a, that the, the logical thought would come quite often when my hawk had caught something and I would sit there and this poor thing would be dead and Mabel would be eating and suddenly from being this kind of wordless hawkish uh, soul I'd be thinking very very clearly about the world and about life and death so that was really interesting that was the moment when 
rationality suddenly appeared. Very weird. Well, there's also the moment in the book where you're about to begin with Mabel, where you need to disappear in order yes. to do that. The invisible girl. Well, that struck me as being something that would be very attractive for someone who was suffering. Yeah. Yeah, it's weird, that, that watching thing, I don't know if it, the, the whole John le Carre thing, I got really obsessed after my dad died with um, Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy. In particular, the character of little Jumbo, who's a watcher, a little small child who's very quite miserable and, uh, and, 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 and likes to observe the world rather than take part because it's safer. And I was like that as a kid, which is weird because I had a really happy childhood. I didn't quite know why, why that was, but I used to go and hide and watch things from a distance and watch birds in particular and used to sort of realize that trick that if you watch something very, very closely, something alive, you can forget you're there and you can be the thing you're watching. And it's a really addictive trick. And I, obviously this is what happened with Mabel. Um, but yeah, I don't, I don't know how... Sorry, can we go back? What we, the, the question? I'm, well, that was the question, yeah. how attractive it is. It is attractive. It is. It's, 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 and once, you, once you've learned how to do it, I mean, it's something I do routinely if I'm watching birds now. You can go into a kind of mental state. I can't explain this, but you can go into a mental state where you can walk up to birds and they don't, even, they don't notice you. Um, it must be some weird atavistic hunting kind of <laughs> capacity. But um, once, once you've learned how to slip into that weird invisibility state, obviously you're not invisible, of course. That's, that's nuts. Um, you know, I've done things like walk through towns and had pigeons fly into my face <laughs> because I don't see I'm there. I don't, know, I don't quite know what it is. It's a way of sort of being unobtrusive, really radically unobtrusive. And, um, yeah, it was, it's a state that you fell into. And I guess my time with Mabel was pretty much that, but just for months and months on end, I just wasn't there. And how did that fit with the world of supermarkets and television and pubs and restaurants and uh, civilization. Yeah. yeah, Cambridge is pretty eccentric, but there are limits. <laughs> have any of you guys been to Cambridge in England? I'm sure you have. You, you, can, wear, you can wear kind of um, floor-length robes and, and, and wear tweed and with holes in and just talk Latin all the time. That's fine, you know. But if you walk around with a bloody great hawk on your hand, people do think mm. you're a bit odd. Um, I used to try and ignore them, which was quite, quite easy because they wanted to ignore me. Um, I remember vividly small boys shouting, Harry Potter, at me, which was really <laughs> annoying. I was That's like, it's owls. a goshawk, not an owl. Um, I remember one woman going to her small daughter, who was about seven, don't go near, don't go near the hawk lady, darling. Um, yeah, no, I, I was... But, I mean, the everyday world, yeah, it became something which I had to go into. It was like diving into a pool and then coming back again. So I'd go to kind of... Um, there was a Marks and Spencer supermarket around the corner. And um, when I had money, I used to go and, I used to go and get um, their reduced food. There was lots of very bad, bad meals that year. Mm. I remember vividly I had one that was stewed, crump, um, stewed pheasant and stale crumpets. Mm. Together. Yeah. Goodness. Yeah. <laughs> It's, um, all, of the, all of the hawks in the book are, are female, or all of the ones you describe, I think. Uh, T.H. White's was male. Was male, Ma yeah. male. Mabel, obviously female, yeah, yeah. But I've heard you describe gosses as a boy's bird, or a boyish... <laughs> I feel so bad about this. Well, there's weird things, like the, you know, the, the name Mabel. I mean, there's a wonderful thing about why, you, why she was called Mabel, partly because it's from the Latin for lovable, which is kind of, I really wanted love deep down, even though I wanted to run away. But also this weird thing, we were talking a little earlier in, in the green room about um, this wonderful Irish falconry centre. Mm. Um, there's a guy here called James, and um, 
maybe if you give hawks cute names, they're meant to be better, better, more efficient flyers and, and sort of predators. Killers. Yeah. Um, so uh, uh, Mabel, I have a friend who's a goshawk called Bunty, and James has one called Baby Doll. Only he's so embarrassed he calls her BD because Baby Doll is just way shouting weird. Baby Doll at the Baby Doll with a waving raw meat in the air is a bit odd, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. Is it is it um is it a boys' club? Are there many hawk ladies? Great question. Sorry, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm I'm the queen of the kind of diversion today, aren't I? I'm sorry about that. Um, there are more and more than there are many more than there were, which is brilliant. When I was a kid, I um, I thought I was like all the other falconers, you know, in Britain, and of course they were all sort of forty-year-old men in tweed. Um, I was a bit of an, a bit oblivious as a child, really. Was, I'm one of you, um, and they really did offer me snuff when I went out hawking. <laughs> How old are you? Twelve. Twelve. Yeah. Go on. Go on. What is it? <laughs> um, but more now, I, th- I mean, it's not very many still. I think about 10, 10 15% of, of new falconers are women. Um, and, but if you go back in, back in time to sort of 11th and 12th centuries, it was, it was actually John of Salisbury talked about falconry as being actually women were better than the men. So, uh, yeah, we're just, we're just rec- reclaiming lost, uh, lost ground. And it's weird. Like, a lot of people will say stuff like, I've had journalists say to me, do you think that women are better at falconry because they are, you know, hardwired to deal with things that can't speak? What? You know. <laughs> it's like, what, men? No. <laughs> Sorry, that was terrible. Um, and say stuff like, you know, they, can, they, they, they pay attention to kind of non-verbal cues. And I'd be like, no. And it's really weird. There's a bit in the book where Mabel catches her first pheasant. And it's an incredibly moving experience. I'm very sad for the pheasant. And I start weeping for the pheasant. And I weep for my dad. And I weep for everything, really. It's really sad and serious. And I talk about it. I suddenly felt very maternal towards Mabel. I started plucking this pheasant so she could eat. Like if she was a child, it just sort of worked out something about her life. And this same journalist, I'm being really evil now. He's a lovely man. said... You said you felt maternal. <laughs> and I said, but if I was a bloke, I'd have said paternal. You know, it, it's really weird, the sense that needing to reduce experiences or emotional experiences with animals or with nature to that script about what it is to be mm. a woman. And I found that really bizarre. Well, a lot of the famous books in the British tradition are about male experiences. Yeah, gay, ma- gay male experiences. Gay male experiences, <laughs> yeah. 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 So this is the thing I discovered that was really quite moving is that a lot of books about nature um, that are very famous, like Gavin Maxwell's Otter books, um, there's a wonderful book about Cuckoo by a guy called Maxwell Knight, who was the original M. A lot of these are written by men who were gay, who, who couldn't uh, talk about close, intimate relationships with people. So they wrote about animals. And that's a really poignant tradition and something that hasn't really been talked about. But yeah, basically, um, there is a long tradition. If you talk about nature... You know, it's, mm. it's a boy's world, yeah, yeah. And it's still the case, you know, it's weird. I mean, I don't think there are... I mean, this sounds like I'm whining, I'm not. It's just fascinating. In England last year, there were, like, you know, scores of books written about nature and nature writing. But I think I was the only woman. And that just seems very odd still, that that's still the case. Mm. Odd. It's taken you to some unusual parts of the world, your work. Yes, I've been to Norwich. <laughs> Devon. 
I went, I went to an amazing stage in an amazing, I went to the uh, literary festival in Devon, a stage in an amazing house with a whalebone arch. That's what, and a, one of the gates had these whale bones. I was like, this is really weird. With a very, very lovely lady who owned the manor. And I she did, had these exquisite gardens, you know, acres and acres of gardens. And I said to her, you know, I've, I've got a problem with bamboo in my garden. And she said, is it by a lake? <laughs> I said, no, it's by the fence. I can't <laughs> Um, so I have, I've moved in circles that I wouldn't normally move mm. in, and I've stayed in ho lovely hotels. But yeah, I've been to America and Canada, and I'm here now, and it's, it's been a joy. It's been absolutely amazing. I constantly pinch myself that this is happening. I can hardly believe it. It's lovely. And the inevitable New Zealand question, you've met some of our birds. I have. You yes. have kias, kiwis, I haven't, I haven't. I have smelt kiwi poo. I went out with the wonderful Neville Pete. I don't know if any of you know Neville, who is an absolute star, uh, amazing writer and naturalist, and took me out and uh, he said, look at that, pick that up. I was like, and he went, that's kiwi poo. And I was like, right, he went, smell it. <laughs> Enamel paint, amazing. Not amazing. the inside of a clarinet. So pitch. basically, my knowledge of New Zealand birds has been seen a few, seen a few tuis, seen a few whatever, but basically what they smell like seems to be the most important thing here. So. But I'm really sad I, can't, I haven't seen some things, you know, but I did go and see the albatrosses and um, I am afraid I just burst into tears when I saw one come in. They are so huge and so extraordinary and they come in and they're so big your brain can't imagine they're really birds. It's like there's a dog hanging in the air or something. Mm. You know? um, absolutely magnificent, yeah. So thank you very much, New Zealand, for your birds and your amazing welcome. Looking forward to having you back for the fungi the session. Fun the fungus book, yeah, next year. As I train, F, hey, no, F is for fungus. F is for fungus. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, thank Helen you. Thank you very much. I hope you have enjoyed listening to this podcast from the 2015 Auckland Writers' Festival. You can find a range of other talks, interviews and discussions on iTunes or on our website, writersfestival.co.nz.